Open your Bibles with me to 1 John. We've concluded our study of Nehemiah last week, and I trust that it was an encouraging uh, book to your soul as it was, was to mine, and we're turning our attention now to a New Testament book, the book of First John, and it's my hope by way of introduction this morning to give us some historical and biblical context for the book, and as well as some uh, using John's introduction here, I'm going to be preaching from the first four verses in First John. Uh, chapter 1 there, and allowing him to give us some understanding of why we as New Testament believers in 2015 need this book, and we need it, I believe, maybe more than ever. Please stand with me in the honoring of of the reading of God's word, and let us read once again uh, the first four verses here um, of 1 John. What was from the beginning, what we have heard... What we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ." These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Let's pray once again. Father, we come to your word expectantly, expecting you, Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit to speak to us, to draw us. And as I heard this week, Father, there are many books that can change our mind, but this one can change our very nature. And we're asking for you to do that this morning. Change us, Lord, to be more like your son. We thank you, Father, for the word of truth. We thank you, Lord, that we know that it is true. And we stand upon it today. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Many scholars and theologians, many historians would agree that the death of Christ happened either in A.D. 30 or A.D. 33. And there is so much history, and I would note that there's so much correct history because there's no error in this book. There's so much history and information in this book, especially when it comes to uh, timestamps in history, that we can really say with great confidence that It's either in A.D. 30 or A.D. 33, and most uh, scholars would fall with A.D. 33, and if you study some, uh, it's pretty clear it's probably A.D. 33. The first, the book of 1 John, um, though we're not given who the author is, it's called 1 John, we're not told, um, like in some of Paul's uh, letters, who the author is, we can say with probably pretty strong certainty that it is the Apostle John. The disciple whom Jesus loved. And if you were to take a very close examination of the book of John, the Apostle John, uh, the Gospel of John, and then uh, closely examine First John as well, there's so much similarity in style and content that we can have uh, strong certainty as well that this was written by the Apostle John. In 66 AD, so depending upon 
uh, where the death of Christ comes anywhere from 36 um, years or 33 years after the death of Christ, the Jewish war uh, began. And in 70 AD, as Christ warned to his followers, there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. He was referring to the temple. And sure enough, under the Roman reign of Nero, that did happen. And in Matthew 24, Christ urged his followers to flee the city when that would come. And the history seems to indicate that John was in the city of Jerusalem when this happened. And he did the warnings and fled the city and fled uh, to Ephesus where he carried out the rest of his life. Uh, But for a short time there, he was imprisoned on the island of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. So somewhere around AD 90 is where we would time stamp this first book of 1 John, probably more than likely written in the city of Ephesus, a city at that time that was a port city, a very important city, a very pagan city, a very idolatrous city, and the temptations that were in that city are addressed in many ways in this letter. And for us as uh, Western Christians, the United States of America is a very important and powerful nation and country, And I think we could all now agree, a very pagan country, and that should increase our attention on the need to study this book of 1 John. In Revelation, uh, the Apostle John writes to churches, as you would see there if you study the book. And we can assume, uh, probably pretty with great certainty, that he was um, a minister to those churches. And Ephesus was his hub of ministry and he would go out and around uh, because we know that he succeeded, succeeded in many ways um, the Apostle Paul and Timothy in pastoring many of those churches and that this letter was written more than likely to the church of Ephesus. I would encourage you as you are doing your uh, personal devotions in the next coming days and weeks, uh, months, maybe even, to really study uh, this book and read through it in your personal devotions. I think it'll be encouraging to you and will set you up uh, for our study here at church. What are we going to find in First John? And just really broad here, we'll, we'll get down to some more detail this morning, but in great broad strokes, I think what inevitably we find is that the Apostle John, though late in his life, fires some very straight and clear and powerful distinctives about the Christian life and how they are to apply to us today and how they apply back then. And, and when you read this book, he is a very passionate writer. He's, he's one of the sons of thunder. This was his nature. He, he was a man of great passion. He was a very bold man. And he writes this book, and you see it very clearly, he's passionate about knowing Christ and very bold in his declarations of what that should look like. And yet at the same time, when you read it, you get such an understanding and a taste for the love of God for us and the love that we should have as believers in reciprocating that love back to him. But his, his boldness really leaves almost, if not any, gray area at all. It's really, you're all for Christ or you're out, which we know to be true. And he proclaims this in, in verse 5, God is light, no darkness. It's, it's very black and white in the way John describes things. And we would have a, 
a very false understanding in today's world of equality. And, you know, we have everyone uh, wanting to be a winner. No one is going to be left out. And yet this book stands very boldly to proclaim that you are in Christ um, if he has done a work in you and that there will be evidence of his work in your life. Well, we'll see this, but what is the, what is the more pinpointed purpose of this book? And we're going to look at for a couple things here in the first four verses of 1 John this morning. Probably a, a better question, a question that I've taken uh, from someone else that I've begun to apply in my study of Scripture is, why did the Holy Spirit give us this book? What's here for me that he saw and inspired through the Holy Spirit that men should write this for us. What, what, what is it for today? Look with me again at the first four verses. We want to consider three things, three reasons why we have this book of First John. And I'm going to give you these three and then we'll delve in them, into them deeper. Number one reason that we might be certain of the deity of Christ and the incarnation of Christ. That we might be certain of the deity of Christ and the incarnation of Christ. Number two, that we might have fellowship with God the Father and Christ the Son. And number three, that we might have joy with one another. Point one, that we might be certain of the deity of Christ and the incarnation of Christ. Well, it help us understand in terms, what does deity mean? For the children, deity means to be God. What does incarnation mean? It means to have a human body. So God was, Christ, Jesus Christ was perfectly God and yet fully man. And John writes here in the first two verses of this book, look with me at it, verse one and two, what was from the beginning, meaning Christ from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at, touched with our hands concerning the word of life, speaking of Christ, and the life was manifested, manifested meaning it was shown to us, given to us by God, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, again meaning Christ, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. He's, he's stating his proof of the existence of Christ, of the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. And his proof is not one simply of, of hearsay or myth or fantasy. It's not some little story that had been, you know, the children's game telephone where you whisper it into the ear and the next whisper, and by the get to the end, it's just an abstract story compared to the beginning. This is not something like that where he's simply saying, hey, I heard this story from someone else, from someone else, from someone else. Not at all. John has concrete evidence the the firm foundation of truth on the person and work of Christ and that he was very intimately aware of and is backed by others. The intimacy being very much that John experienced Christ in the flesh. Look, look with me there. What was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we looked at, touched with our hands. John saw Christ with his own eyes. He touched Christ physically, not just be, before his death, but after his death as well. He touched him. 
He heard from him. He saw him with his own eyes. That's why John says, what we have seen with our eyes. When I'm studying the passage, one of the first questions I asked was, why does he say with our eyes? That's the only way to see, right? With our eyes? But he's, he's saying, I've seen this with my own eyes. I walked, I talked, I touched and held relationship with Christ, the Son of God. And in that relationship, he talked with me and he touched me. He is real. That, that's, what, that's what John is, is opening right out of the gate with here, is Jesus Christ is real. This is not something that is a game or to be played with. He is alive. He's not a myth or a fantasy. The person and work of Jesus Christ is a very real thing. We have, we have more historical evidence of the validity of this book, if you just want to go off sheer numbers, than any other historical manuscript that we have. Christ walked on this earth. He talked with John. John touched him. Christ touched him. And we walk in by faith and not by sight, but, but the foundation of our walk by faith and not by sight has, is not moved because it's resting upon Christ who was real and is still alive today. God gave us the gift of seeing Christ, Christ incarnate in the flesh for uh, us. John opens his letter by boldly proclaiming what every generation must know and believe and act upon. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and yet Son of Man, is alive, ruling, and reigning, and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will one day, as he promised, return and judge the world for eternity. Every person, every nation, every generation has to come to terms with this. And John opens his letter in in such a John fashion. There's no, hey, how are you? A.K.A. Paul, you know, Paul greets warmly, pray for you, think of you. John, no, boom, Christ is real, Fix this. Get it right. So easy to lose importance of the to lose sight of the importance of Christ, and, and John knows this. It's so easy for us to lose sight of the importance of Christ. It's so easy to stray from keeping Him preeminent, and yet we see right from this letter the preeminence of Christ as as the Son of God, and yet the Son of Man. And he, and he opens not just for the proclamation for us. He opens it because every false religion, if you, if you want to know where does the false religion go south, it always goes south, it always goes wrong, it always errs at what they do with Christ. How do they view Christ? And, and they, may, they may espouse 99% of what you have before you, but if they go wrong on Christ... They err, and they and those that follow that false religion are damned to hell. Christ is the only way, the truth, the life. No man, no woman, no boy, no girl. No one comes into the Father but by Christ. We err on Christ. We err at all of it. Consider John MacArthur's statement. If you're believing in a false Jesus, you're damned. You preach any other Christ than the true Christ, you're damned. That's Galatians 1. If you fail to love the Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 16, you're cursed. 
We have to be loving and believing in the true Christ, not a false Christ, not a Christ of our own imagination, not some sentimental Jesus, not the Jesus of liberalism, not the Jesus of liberation theology, not the Jesus of Mormonism, not the Jesus of Islam, not the Jesus of private invention. It must be the Jesus of the Bible. In these first two verses, John clearly states who Christ is. He's both eternal and he's earthly. Look with me at his understanding of eternal. Eternal is seen that he was from the beginning. From the beginning there. What was from the beginning? Christ was from the beginning. From the beginning of time. From the beginning of eternity. Jesus Christ, both God and man, yet always was and always will be. He is eternal. John seven twenty nine. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Proverbs 8. Turn in your Bibles to Proverbs 8 with me. Proverbs 8, 22. Proverbs 8, 22. The Lord possessed me. This is, this is Christ. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way. Before his works of old, from everlasting I was established from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. This is obviously speaking of the human vernacular at the same time Christ was there. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills were brought forth, while he had not yet made the earth and the fields nor the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he ascribed a circle in the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set for the sea its boundaries so that the water would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, Then I was beside him as a master workman and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth and having my delight in the sons of man. John 1, 1 through 2. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Christ, eternal from the beginning and yet not just eternal in that context, going back to 1 John with me, Look with me there. Verse 2, And the life was manifested. We have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life. Not just eternal in terms of from the beginning and always will be, but in terms of he's the eternal life. Notice it says the eternal life. Only one which was with the Father and was manifested to us. John fourteen six. I am the way the truth, and the life. But not only is eternal, he is also earthly. He's fully God and yet fully man. John 1, 14, I'm going to read some passages here. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Acts 1, 3, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Second Peter 1, 16. 
and 18 through 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses. This is Peter speaking. Eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Luke 24, 39. See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. John twenty twenty seven. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it in my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Jesus Christ, both God and man, the wondrous mystery of the incarnate. How is this possible? How could it be that Christ would leave his heavenly throne and come to earth in life and walk among us? And feel and experience all that we feel and experience, and yet be perfect and without sin. One of the one of the newer songs that our church has been learning is "Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery," and I love the line in there: "Come behold the wondrous mystery, He, the perfect Son of Man, in His living, in His suffering, never trace, nor stain of sin." See the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man, Christ the great and sure fulfillment of the law. In him we stand. 1 Timothy 3.16, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. It is, a, it is a marvelous mystery that God sent his son, the second person of the Trinity, to walk and talk with us. John touched him and heard his voice. And Christ heard John's voice and touched him. Point one. John writes this letter that we might be certain of the deity of Christ and the incarnation of Christ. We cannot doubt this. To do so is to, is to doubt the person and work of Christ. Point two, that we might have fellowship with God the Father and Christ the Son. Almost all of Scripture, we have horizontal reasons for the teaching and we have vertical and John gives both this morning, and the first one would be vertical, that we might have fellowship. This book is that we might have fellowship with God the Father and Christ the Son. How do we do that? Only through Christ. Verse 3. Look with me at verse 3. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Consider the fact that if Christ is real and alive today and is to be taken seriously, deadly seriously, his word and his example and this book, the Bible, is the way to know and have fellowship with God. The only way to know and have fellowship with God is through Christ. 
And yet it's a knowing that is not just mental, it's a knowing that will change you. And if change does not place, take place, then according to Scripture, there was not a knowing. 1 John 4, which we'll get to in the coming days and weeks, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. John 1, 4, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 11 25 and 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The world today is, is quite fascinated with the spiritual realm. If you just go look at the box office numbers, you'll see the, the fascination with the spiritual realm. If you go look at the, the best-selling book list, you'll see the fascination with the spiritual realm. And particularly the last couple of years, this fascination with uh, those who have supposedly gone to heaven and come back and have some sort of testimony about it. That's all, th- these have all held top spots. And, and Christians, not just unchristians, Christians were, were fascinated by this. But the world wants this experience with God without Christ. And in fact, we as Christians can tend to want an experience with God without Christ, without, without a relation, with, we're wanting the relationship, but we're not wanting to commit to the duty of the relationship. We, we want the relationship, but we don't want to have to repent of our sins because of his commands, Christ's commands. We want the relationship, but, but I would prefer not to have to trouble myself by, by having to read this Bible. I have more important things to do. And yet, it's clearly articulated here and throughout all Scripture that if we want to have a relationship with God, it's only through, it's only through Christ Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. We only know God the Father through Christ the Son. But consider the truth, though, that if you, we can look at it from both ways. One way would be going, well, I, I can't know God unless I know Christ, and that, that seems to be difficult at times and yet the truth the positive side being that if you if you know Christ you know God the father and it's 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 not just it, it, we're talking about the god of the universe here we're we're talking about the king of kings and the lord of lords we're talking about a, a knowing that's not i know about him i've heard of him when the Bible talks of knowing, that's the same language it uses when it talks about Adam knowing his wife in a physical way. There's a, there's a very close, intimate knowing here. The Greek word for know in Matthew eleven twenty seven denotes a thorough acquaintance. It's, it's complete. God knows us completely. And we will never be able to know him completely because he is infinite. And yet, we can know him. And how do we know him? We know him, look with me at verse one again, the word of life. A careless flippancy to the Bible is a careless flippancy toward Christ. 
Because the word of this word is Christ. The living word, the word of life is Christ. We know God through Christ and we know Christ through his word. And we, we, we must be praying that this Bible will one day again be central to churches and homes and lives. And until it is, we're in a sad and dangerous state. 1.1, that we might be certain of the deity of Christ and the incarnation of Christ. Point two, that we might have fellowship with God the Father and Christ the Son. Point three, that we might have joy with one another. You know, considering our sin, there's really no reason we should be reading the Bible and get anything out of it for ourselves. We, we don't deserve any of that. But isn't he good? This is amazing. Th- this is for us. And there's a great blessing here. The blessing of joy. Joy, not, not just any blessing. I mean, this is what people long for. Joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. 1 Peter 1, 8 Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is, that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Look with me at verse 4 of 1 John 1. These things, what are those things? The truth of Christ is what, he's, what these things are. The truth of Christ and in the coming chapters... Uh, of what our lives should look like in the light of the work of Christ, these things we write, John writes, so that our joy may be complete. That his joy may be complete. On face value, that seems awfully strange. Why does his joy rely upon him writing this to the church, us, and if he doesn't, his joy and our joy will be incomplete. That that doesn't seem to mesh very well. C.S. Lewis, I think, has a helpful thought on this. Lewis speaking, quote, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy. We've read this quote before. Because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. Say that again. We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share with it. Have you ever thought, why do we have photography? Why do we have, why can we take a picture and it's because we want to capture something that we find most delightful and go share it with another person to complete our joy in that. I thought this was incredible. I think you will too. And you finding it enjoyable makes my joy in that complete. John is writing this saying, I want you to know this because I'm so overwhelmed, joy inexpressible, full of glory that I I want you to know this and share this joy with me. Joy at its highest apex is expressed because without the expression, the joy is incomplete. And when I was studying this by way of application, the thought occurred to me, 
What does it say about my joy in Christ when I don't share him with others? That mean I, what does that say? Really, my joy is not where it needs to be? According to 1 John, I think that would be the case. Why can we not have fellowship and joy with one another unless he gives the truth of Christ? That's the hinge. He's writing these things about the truth of Christ so this joy, our joy, may be made complete. Why? Simple, because a lack of understanding and agreement on the person and work of Christ should create discord. Unfortunately, in today's world, we don't, that doesn't create discord as much as it should. But we should have a, an agreement and an understanding about the person and work of Christ because that's going to create a unified understanding of Christ that will create fellowship. And when I say fellowship, again, this is much the same word that is used for knowing it's very close, it's very intimate, and it's of the same mind. And notice in verse 3 here, there's two words, the, fellowship, the word fellowship and it's the exact same word is used twice. Look with me there. So that you two may have fellowship with us. So there's the horizontal. And then, and then there's going to be our fellowship is with the Father. And, and that's a, so the fellowship we have with one another and the fellowship that we have with God it's a, it's a similar desire, it's a similar love, it's a similar passion, it's a like-minded interest. The same fellowship that we hear, that we have, the Father, what ties it all together, though differing in degrees with the Father, is a love for Christ. Christ loves his Son. And if, if we are to love the Son, Jesus Christ, and so we have fellowship with one another and fellowship with God the Father, those two things are combined in Christ. That's where the that's the tying bind there. It's it's in Christ. And unless we are sharing, unless we know Christ and in that knowing our joy comes out, there is not going to be a desire to share Christ because my joy is complete it elsewhere. I don't need to share him to complete my joy in him because I'm finding joy outside of Christ. The word, the Bible, the scriptures this morning, we've seen the truth of Christ, the Son of God, Christ's man. We've seen the truth of eternal life only found in Christ. We've seen that fellowship with one another in which we complete our joy must be with fellowship with the Father through Christ. And though this clock says 10.54, which means I have another hour, we'll close with a few thoughts of application here. Just two questions. Has the preeminence, the majesty, the glory, the grandeur, the beauty of Christ waned in your life? Has the preeminence, the majesty, the glory, the grandeur, the beauty of Christ waned in your life? And if so... May I suggest that you study 1 John? Or go back to some of the messages that were preached when we studied Colossians. Go read Colossians 1 and meditate on the truth of Christ. And in doing so, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going to apply some grace-empowered work. You're going to be doing some grace-empowered work to your heart 
through the Holy Spirit to rekindle your affections and have a biblical understanding of Christ. Because that's, that's really oftentimes what we, we miss. We want the kindle, rekindled affections, but we want them absent of the biblical understanding of who Christ is. And then the second question for application would be, how is your joy? Oswald Chambers. You know, he wrote, my utmost for his hymen, my utmost for his highest. And I think what few people know is that that great work for the church came out of three years of the deepest, darkest depression where he, he wanted nothing really to do with God. Slogged, he was in seminary while I was doing this too, just slogged through the Christian life. Labored, labored, labored to the point that he didn't want, he didn't want to get out of bed in the morning. He deep, dark depression. And he labored and worked and sought the Lord and sought the Lord and sought the Lord. And out of that came, right after that came, he began writing. And those, all through the journals that he had kept through that time, his wife went back and, and collaborated, put them all together and out came my utmost, for his high, my utmost for his highest. This is what he says. Living a life, living a full and overflowing life does not rest in bodily health, in circumstances, nor even in seeing God's work succeed but in the perfect understanding of God and in the same fellowship and oneness with him that Jesus himself enjoyed. But the first thing that will hinder this joy is the subtle irritability caused by giving too much thought to our circumstances. Jesus said the cares of this world choke the world and it becomes unfruitful in Mark 4.19. And before we even realize what has happened, we are caught up in our cares All that God has done for us is merely the threshold. He wants us to come to the place where we will be his witnesses and proclaim who Jesus is. If you find that your joy in Christ has waned, then receive once again the word of life. If you find that your joy is not overflowing, both to the believer and unbeliever, receive again the word of life. And you receive him because he's been given. He's been manifested by the gracious goodness of the Father. It said it's twice in 1 John 1, 1 through 4. Manifested, shown to us, given to us by God, the loving Heavenly Father. Joy in Christ does not rest upon circumstances, people, places, or things. It rests upon the finished work of Christ. But may I note that his work is finished Ours is not. And in him is where we find the living word of life that strengthens and nourishes our souls on the journey to be more like him. Let's pray. Father, we would plead, I would plead, Lord, and ask that you would Create, once again, renew, strengthen my heart, Father, to see the finished work of Christ, to see, once again, the the profound mystery that is Christ, the Son of God and yet Son of Man. He walked as we walk, Lord. He talked as we talk. He felt as we felt. 
He struggled and yet never gave in. He cried as we cry. He hurt. He was fatigued. He suffered. He bled and he died. Perfectly. For me. So, Father, I would ask that as you would, if you would, your son would tarry and we would have the privilege of studying this book over the coming months, that you would pour out your grace, that we might be faced, come face to face each Sunday with the finished work of Christ and, and yet the unfinished work that we have that you are doing in us and through us and we will do by your grace and you've called us to you've called us to walk in the light because in you there is no darkness you've called us to love you and to obey you and to follow you because if we do not follow and obey you we do not love you so Father in an, in an age where it's so easy for me to have the dichotomy of saying one thing and not doing what I say and yet believing that what I'm saying is really the truth. May we as believers today come face to face with the understanding of our lives being the truest statements of the reflection of that which we worship. Father, we thank you for this study this morning. I thank you for the the joy it is to know you. Joy that is not based on anything other than what Christ has done, Lord. We, we can walk from this place and though our bodies may hurt, though the finances may not be where we want, though the politics may not be where we desire, though the, what, the marriages may not be as strong as we like, though whatever it would be, our joy is not based on anything here. It's based upon you and what you've given and done for us that transcends all of this. So we thank you, Father. We thank you and we give you all the honor and the glory and the praise. Do unto your name. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.